Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I wouldn't say we fell in love right away. I think we were, as they call it in the biz, trauma bonding. And then after eight years of being insufferably sober, I started drinking again. Addicts tend to be rather sensitive people. Aren't you Mark Maron? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what happened to you? Welcome huh? to Light Hustler. You're not talking yet. She's a beautiful <laughs> voice, but she's not allowed to talk yet. I am. I'm your host, Anna David. Thank you so much. If you're new to the podcast, we're so excited that you're here. If you're old to the podcast, we're just as excited that you're here. And by the way, if you like this podcast, you don't want to be missing episodes. I have such exciting guests coming up. So to make sure that doesn't happen, just go ahead and hit subscribe, and you will never be left out in the cold, in the dark, let's just say, since it's Light Hustler. (laughs) You will not. So, okay, I'm going to get right into it. Guest today, long overdue. She is the beautiful, wondrous director of advancement with facing addiction with NCADD, Ivana Grahovic. Yes. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. So Ivana and I met at the rally two years ago? Three years ago, almost. It'll be three years in October. Three years ago, almost. Jesus. Well, two and a half years. Let's not like <laughs> move this year along too much. Um, and and uh, we met in this tent I was very new to what facing addiction was, and you were just this beautiful blonde making speeches with incredibly important politicians on stage, and I was just like, who is this woman? And our relationship has progressed from there. What I was then, okay, so then my next exposure to you was at a facing addiction event with Joe Walsh, where I brought my Italian intern, and... Somehow you guys started talking and I heard you talking about like modeling for Versace. Then I hear Dolce. Dolce. <laughs> then there, in the next sentence was in jail. I was like, she has been what, a supermodel in jail. Please explain. <laughs> so here we go. Yeah. So you're, you're originally from Croatia. My parents immigrated from there. Yeah. In the 70s. Okay, so you're so and you were born in Detroit. In Detroit, Croatia mm-hmm. to Detroit. Is this a normal trajectory? Uh there's you know some Croats in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my dad had some. Originally, like my dad's grandparents were, they had a ton of kids in America, and they were deported from the U.S. during the twenties mm-hmm. during Prohibition because they were running a speakeasy. So the last kid, the 10th kid was born back in Croatia and that was my dad's dad. So when he graduated medical school, he went to Michigan and lived with some of his, you know, older relatives and that's how he got situated there and met my mom in Croatia and brought her to America like four months later. (laughs) So you were brought up, uh, English was your first language then? Croatian was my first language, but, um, you know, grew up speaking English, watching TV and going to school. How many siblings do you have? I have an older sister. You have an older sister. Yes. There you grew up in Detroit, not, not glamorous. Nope. Nope. And when did you start using drugs and alcohol and all of that? Um... 
I got into it when I was in college. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Did I, you go to school in Michigan? I did. I did. I went um, first like a throwaway year to U of M Dearborn. Um, and then I went to Wayne State University, uh-huh. which is like in the heart of Detroit. And, um, you know, I kind of, I had started experimenting a bit with pot, but I was able to like put it down. Wasn't crazy about it, but I had a, I have, you know, relatives in Croatia and one of my cousins got me super turned on to ecstasy and going to like techno parties and it was on. Really? It was off the chain. Yeah. I never had that phase. What was great about it? Oh my God. Well, like. Did you like unicorns when you were a child? No, I didn't. Is that the problem? It's, that's <laughs> why. Like, if you liked unicorns, then like ecstasy and techno parties were your jam. People are really into unicorns, so no wonder. Well, okay. it's like more of like the phantasmagorical type of like, you know, just people with like pink Afro puffs and like silver mini skirts and like, you know, platform shoes. And you're just like raving, you know, until the break of dawn. And there's just a lot of like creativity and just that kind of, yeah, like cosmic, cosmic type of stuff. So how many times would you say you've done ecstasy? Oh God. Um, probably like a couple dozen times. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we were talking about your back. You know, remember when you when I did ecstasy back in high school? They were like, "We don't know what this does to your back." Oh God. Okay. No, no, no. I'm not saying that's the problem. No, but hey, you know, it's a cumulative effect. But um, so doing ecstasy, Mm -hmm. it's a stimulant, of course, as you know, and coming down the next day would be just really painful and depressing and insomnia and like excruciating, like doing Coke all night. Yeah. And except you've been dancing for eight hours, um, crushing your spine, obviously. And so then it was introduced to me, well, Hey, you know, all you have to do is sniff a line of heroin and you'll come right down and you'll be able to sleep. And so innocuously, like that's how it all started. So really you started doing heroin as an antidote to an ecstasy come down. Totally. Yeah. Like heroin was not my drug of choice. Right. Ecstasy was my drug of choice. But in order to keep doing, like when people say like the reason only, the only reason why I like did Coke was so I could drink more. Yeah. 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 Like my thing was the only reason why I took heroin was so I could keep doing ecstasy. That's fascinating. Yeah. I've never heard that. (laughs) And so you didn't have any sort of, oh God, heroin. No, that's really serious. You just sort of thought, oh, okay. I did at first. Um, and I was in college, I remember, and I totally justified it with that stigma, right? Like, oh, people like me, you know, who are living with their families and going to college, you know, they don't end up on the streets because of heroin. Like that's people, you know, who are already out there doing crazy stuff. Right. So that's totally how I, you know, made it okay. And you were living at home? I was living at home and, uh, I actually, so I went to be a model. I worked for, um, the elite modeling agency in Milan and I was a showroom model for Dolce and Gabbana Uh for like a year. And, uh, you know, I also struggled really badly with an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. So my eating disorder sort of precipitated the addiction because it just created a really, you know, uh, a breeding ground inside for just depression, anxiety, obsession, compulsion, um, all that stuff. And then that's why the drugs were so appealing to me. So I could, 
balance it out so I could feel okay. Wait, let's walk it back one second. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're living at home. You're going to Wayne State. Yes. You're going out to raves, and then somebody at a rave says to you, hey, did you know if you did heroin, you won't feel so bad tomorrow? Like, And you're doing heroin in your childhood bedroom. Like, I just want to understand. I first started to do it when I was like, I would go to Croatia every summer. Okay. And we would find a techno party and okay. we would drive down there and we mm-hmm. would totally go crazy all night and dance. And then the next morning we would all take a bunch of heroin and just sleep it off. Okay. Right. And so I did that for like a summer and then, God, what's the order? Like I didn't want to go back to America just yet. So like I came up with this brilliant idea of, well, I'm just going to go model in Italy. And and so how does one do that? <laughs> you basically show up and you start going around. Well, back did at the time. go to Italy? And you said, I'm here? Yeah. Yeah. You just well, when you're, roll up to Milan. When you're like six feet tall and blonde like you, I guess you get to do that. But in but literally, you you buy a ticket to Milan. Yeah. I took a train. I took a you bus took a or a train. Yeah. And you said, I know where Elite is. I'm going to go there. Yeah. I went to various agencies and I had like some pictures that were like not great. And you just kind of say, you know, this is who I am. And you were 18 or something. How old? I was 22. Mm-hmm. I was about 22, 21, mm-hmm. 22. And like, I just kind of stopped going to college and was like, well, I want to try this. You know, everyone always suggests, Hey, you could model or whatever. And, you know, didn't have that developed sense of self yet, Mm -hmm. which is kind of endemic Mm -hmm. to people struggling with addiction at some point. Um, and so you just show up and, and, and they say, yeah, like we'll sign you mm-hmm. and we'll help you go to castings as they're called. And you go to different designers and walk for them and try on clothes and they'll pick you for stuff. And I ended up getting chosen to like work and it was not glamorous at all, like at all, mm-hmm. because you're literally like in like they're building their showroom and buyers from all around the world. I remember from like Abu Dhabi and from like, um, you know, China and other parts of the world come and they order the clothes that they want for their boutiques. Yep. And so you're like the model that has to try on all the clothes that they want. Right. And you like parade around for them literally all day. Right. And that's it. And I did get to work with this really amazing guy named Lambros Malona, who is from New York, who was a designer at the time. And I did get to walk in the Fiera, which is like the big, you know, runway kind of place. So I did get to do that. And that, that was cool. So you were what, like a sophomore in college and you just, uh, left. I absconded. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and so there you are in Milan. You're doing this. It sounds glamorous, but it's not totally. And you're still going to raves and doing heroin and all that stuff. I was like very isolated while I was in Milan. Um, and that's when I started, I wasn't doing anything. Cause like, I didn't know my way around, didn't speak Italian. Like I was staying at this residence on the outskirts of Milan, which looked like something out of Blade Runner and um i started to casually kind of seek out well you know i'm gonna spend this whole weekend by myself i'm lonely um like i would go to the bookstores and buy like all the american like language books that they had and just read those and i was like maybe i can find some heroin or something so i would start to oh my god the look in your eyes is amazing i love it because you're like (laughs) i'm looking at a bookstore and then i think i could buy some heroin (laughs) Yeah. And like, I went to this park and, you know, they told me to go to a train station and I found some kids who totally looked like they were just really, you know, really struggling on heroin and asked them where I could get some. And, and they ended up uh, showing me where I could go. So how long did you stay in Milan? I was in Milan from like August of 98 until spring of 99. 
And so let's talk about the eating disorder. At what age did that start? That preceded all of it. Preceded all of it. 19. Yeah. So 19, you realized, um, oh, I can control how I feel. Was it even that conscious? You were just like, oh, I want to be thin or it like I grew up dancing ballet. Mm -hmm. And so there was always this like hyper focus on your body. Yep. And, and it's so, it's so reinforced societally. Yeah. It's so reinforced societally. And I'm like a very, like my energy is just very absorbent to my Mm -hmm. environment, Mm -hmm. which is why I want to live in San Diego Mm -hmm. because it's chill there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just remember like taking in all those negative sort of messages Mm. and, you know, I, there was a war in Croatia when I was an adolescent, which was just awful and debilitating and sad and scary. And so I had all that buried kind of trauma. And then when I was 19, I was at a techno party and met this guy and he ended up sexually assaulting me mm-hmm. and, you know, I didn't want to ask for help or anything. So like all this stuff was inside of me that I did not know how to metabolize or alchemize, um, which is what we do in recovery. And I, um, you know, I realized that that's when I could binge and purge. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that was my way of trying to kind of cope with mm-hmm. that absolutely out of control feeling and that super duper low self esteem. And so that's how I started to like either starve or then I would binge and then I would purge. Mm-hmm. And that lasted for nine years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then what happens? So you're in Milan, you're b- the binging and purging and the heroining and the Versace-ing. And then what happens? The Dolce-ing. Sorry, Dolce-ing. <laughs> it's in my head because I also just watched that Versace uh, show. Uh, oh. Did you see it? No, I saw one a long time ago, though. Um, no, the, the, the About one. his murder. Yes. Yes. There was it's... some like made for TV one a long time uh, oh, ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was obsessed with it anyway. So I'm just going <laughs> to keep saying Versace. But okay, yes. Yes. So I was there and then, you know wherever you go, there you are, right? Like I was doing these geographics and they weren't changing the way I felt inside. And so I decided to go back to Detroit and finish my degree. And so I end up in Detroit, you know, back again, living at home with my parents. And I'm trying to drill down into my journalism degree and finish that. And I had to do an internship. So I was looking around for what I could do for journalism. And there didn't seem to be too much exciting stuff going on in Detroit. But the whole time I was in Italy, the Monica Lewinsky scandal was going on. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, wow, White House internship. Like, hmm, totally glamorous, super chaotic. (laughs) You know, attraction to chaos and drama during those times. And I applied to be a White House intern and I got accepted. And I went to go work. I moved to D.C. for a semester uh, September 99. And I worked in the, in the West wing of the white house as an upper press, upper, upper press office, um, intern. And for how long did you do that? For a semester. So like from end of August until Christmas. And what was that like? Really surreal, really surreal. Like you're literally in the white house. Like I saw Buddy the dog and Socks the cat and like Janet Reno and Madeline Albright. And like, you would see Bill with his security detail everywhere. And did Bill see you is the question. Well, post scandal, he was not looking around. I don't think I'm Bill's type. I'm not buxom enough. Okay. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. And plus I was, you know, struggling. I was binging and purging and yeah, doing E and rolling on the weekends at all the DC clubs, which was kind of a blast still. Right. And taking these like crazy $50 flights to Detroit to score heroin and then coming back to DC and like doing it there. 
So then it gets really dark because I know it. Yeah. And the story ends with you stealing a car and going yes. to jail. So how do we get yes, there? Yes, ma'am. Uh, let's see. I went. To, I went to rehab a total of six times, and a lot of that has to do with the very, you know, very, you know, sad state of affairs in terms of how short treatment is, and a lot of that is because of insurance and 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 all kinds of factors. But in Michigan, you can like get treatment, but it's only for 11 days, including detox. And that just was not enough to chip away at everything that I had going inside and and physical withdrawals for me were just absolute pure agony. Um, so I ended up kind of getting kicked out of treatment a couple times for like stealing meds from the nurse's station and all that kind of Did you only go for 11 days each time or Yes, yeah. So you would get kicked out on like day two or like four. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, and you know, and it like that started to like really just define for me, like, wow, like I'm, I'm beyond help. Like mm-hmm. this is, I'm going to be stuck in this horrifying cycle for the rest of my life. And like, why, why persist? And, mm. um, I had just gotten kicked out of a treatment center in Arizona where this guy who sadly ended up overdosing later, you know, brought drugs there and they found him and they kicked him out. They kicked me out. And, uh, and out of that like total whirlwind, I ended up like in a blackout on the streets of Phoenix for a week and then ended up back in Detroit and was just completely desperate and, um, saw a car that had the keys in the ignition, you know, like mm-hmm. this old handyman pickup. And I got in there and I turned the keys and the car started. And like, I started to pull myself out, like pull my way out of an alley. And, and I stopped at a red light cause I didn't want to get a ticket. Mm-hmm. And the guy whose car I stole caught up with me on foot. Oh my god! So that was uh, absolute insanity. And um, oh my god! Yeah, that was that was mayhem. And uh, I ended up in jail. And they actually let me out on a personal bond, which means on my word that uh-huh. I would come back to you know subsequent court hearings and get tested at the time and. You know, really? You're stealing a car, they let you out? Uh, the jails must have been full. Yeah. Okay. The okay. jails must have been full. And plus, I'd never, ever been arrested before. Right, right, right. You know, I'm sure a lot of that has to do with privilege and right. zip code and whatnot. And did whatnot. you say, I'm, a, I'm like a heroin addict? Like, what did you... I didn't have to really say anything okay, okay. because the judge, you know, saw that there were like needles found on me at the time of arrest. And she was like, clearly, this is, you know, the result of a drug issue. Right. Get yourself some treatment. Get yourself tested and you know we can obviously work this out somehow into a probation and mm-hmm. and I just was gone and when mm-hmm. I left like when they took me to the um, police station to get my stuff I ended up hitchhiking um, down into Detroit mm-hmm. uh, it was December 6th or 7th and I lived you know completely homeless on the streets of Detroit in winter from December 7th until about January 18th and do you remember those days well, or was it kind of a blur? I remember a lot of those days, yeah. And a lot of it's blurry, but a lot of it just is really, really terrifying when I think of it. Did you think that you never thought you would get sober at that point? No. At that point, you're just like, I just want to die. Yeah. Yeah. And then what happened? Um, You know, after a lot of just violence and scary assault situations mm-hmm. on the streets and desperation... Um, my parents were looking for me the whole time and I 
would sometimes see them or maybe I was hallucinating that I was seeing them and I would like take off running. And this cop that had, you know, come to my house when my parents, you know, reported that I had taken my sister's car in the middle of the night, I just got out of treatment. Um, he'd always kind of stayed in touch with my family to see how I was doing over the years. And he, my parents like hired him as a PI to like tra- track me down. And they, he found me one morning and, um, I started running away from him and then like ran like straight into my dad and like, I just couldn't run from my dad and, and they took me home and, um, you know, gave me some food to eat. And, uh, my mom went upstairs and, and called the police station mm-hmm. and said, you know, there's a felony bench warrant arrest for my daughter and she's here, come get her. Mm-hmm. And so they came and, uh, arrested me and put me in the cruiser and took me to jail. And, um, I made suicidal threats because of just the insane amount of fear and desperation and like terror that I was about to go into heroin withdrawals. And my mom ended up like translating for them. And, um, they stripped me naked and put me in a suicide cell. And that's when I, you know, just, oh my God, it's like, what well, you know, in this AA, they talk about that surrender. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's when I had my surrender. And I just was like, it finally, like I was able to see through that delusion. Like Mm -hmm. you have to operate under like serious delusion to be that deep in addiction Mm -hmm. in the cycle. And I was never able to like big picture see stuff when I was in that cycle. I only was like, I'm craving, I need drugs. What do I have to do to get them? What do I have to steal? Who do I have to like push out of the way? And being confined in that situation, I was able to see the big picture of how I got there. And it was undeniable that it was because of this insatiable appetite to keep getting high. Mm -hmm. And, um, because I couldn't act on that, um, I had to then kind of think. And that's when I realized, wow, like if I continue to use drugs and pursue them, like I'm going to end up either back here or worse. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I had this like, just, you know, spiritual experience and, um, felt the withdrawals, you know, recede from my body. I didn't have to deal with them. And instead I just felt this like warmth and this sense of reassurance and calmness and like soothing type of peaceful energy that it would be okay. And as long as I didn't go back to using drugs and tried to rebuild my life, like it would all figure itself out. And so that was, um, so you're saying you didn't experience withdrawal, like spiritually they were, it was removed. Yeah. Do people go, what the fuck? Are you serious? I, other people can relate to that. Some people have, I've never actually heard that. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, yeah, I didn't do heroin. So I don't know about what that withdrawal is like. It was like merciful. It was like a merciful energy, which allowed me to then tap into something benevolent in the universe and like the undeniable facts to me that something had been watching over me the whole time that I was in that horrifying um, nightmare. Something was keeping me alive and I could, I could, you know, I could say, well, okay, that's what I can then believe in. Like I can now admit and see the utter destruction that is caused by addiction in my life. And so instead of like praying to that, I'm going to now start to like go in the direction of light, Mm -hmm. you know, which you know a lot about. 
And so you stayed sober from that day, the day you got into jail? On Wish I could say that I did. I got nine months out of that. Uh-huh. See, but that's where it's all about, like, for someone, for myself. I'll only speak for myself, but I need something every single day. Mm-hmm. I need to practice something every single day. And, you know, science will now tell you, like, yeah, you need sustained, you know, therapy or practices or healing modalities or being part of a community or something for your brain to change. And my brain had not changed enough. There was maybe too much trauma or I just didn't realize exactly how much effort and energy it would take for me to like redirect and reorient myself out of that. Um, so I had, you know, I went back to using, um, which was a nightmare, like immediately, immediately. And that lasted about four or five months. Um, and then it ended with me going to treatment one more time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that's where I was like, wow, okay, you know, I have another opportunity. And even though I'm completely bewildered that I slid back into using after everything that I'd been to, like, I can't change that. The only thing I can change is how hard I work and how much I put into this, mm-hmm. you know, go around. And that was how long ago? That was February 15th of 2005. And then how, and then you were in Texas? Yeah. Okay. So then you get to Texas. And here's how I'm confused by the Mm -hmm. trajectory is when I met you almost three years ago, working at Facing Addiction, you then went to Austin Recovery? I was not at Facing Addiction at that time. You were not? No. What were you doing? I was the executive director for Transforming Youth Recovery. That's oh, I see. And my brain has has morphed those together, of course, yes. because it was a facing addiction event. It was a facing addiction event, but facing addiction didn't have their nonprofit status yet. So we we at Transforming Youth Recovery at the time served as the fiscal kind of sponsor for the Unite to Face Addiction rally. So that's Got how I started it. to work with Jim and Greg, and um, I was on the advisory board of Facing Addiction. So, okay, so how did you go from sober to then working uh, for that nonprofit, for tra- what's it called? Transforming Youth Recovery. Uh-huh. It, you know, it all kind of started with me going to graduate school uh, because the only reason why I graduated my undergrad degree in my addiction is because my mom literally drove me to class every single day and sat next to me for an entire semester. There's an article about this, by the way. In this, <laughs> it, what paper is that? I don't remember. It's I, I just stumbled across like a there's an article about uh, heroin addicts who have come into recovery and it talks about how Ivana's mom came to class. With That's you. hilarious. I can't believe you did that. Okay, yeah. That's yeah. Um, so going back to school in sobriety, I first went to community college, mm-hmm. which was amazing, super safe and supportive place. Lots of other people like me who I could identify with. And then after that, I went to university of Michigan, my dream school to the graduate social work program. And there were like, it was just a total Island. Like there was nobody else in recovery. There was no support for recovery in the social work school. And out of that, you know, gap, I was able to form a group called students for recovery. Mm -hmm. And that ended up becoming like a, a formalized professional collegiate recovery program within the university health services. And I was hired to run the Center for Students in Recovery at the University of Texas for four years. And while I was there for four years, um, got to work closely with the Board of Regents. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And because two members of the Board of Regents were in recovery at the time and super passionate about um, supporting young people. And so we got to come up with a model that we spread throughout all nine UT system schools. So it was like a big deal, mm-hmm. um, really exciting stuff. There was a lot of support coming from the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy in D.C. because we had Michael Botticelli. Um, he was deputy director at the time, eventually went on to become director, first openly, um, you know, person in recovery in that position. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had Tom Coderre, presidential appointee at, at SAMHSA, Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. And... Um, and it was just like the sun, moon, and stars lined up for like big things to start happening in, in recovery. And so then Stacy Matthewson, who is a philanthropist um, from Reno, Nevada, and San Diego, she started a foundation, which eventually became called Transforming Youth Recovery. And the whole mission is to provide funding for collegiate recovery programs around the nation, as well as recovery advocacy and um, recovery high schools. Mm-hmm. So she saw what was going on in Texas and, you know, reached out and asked if I wanted to be her new executive director and mm-hmm. totally did that and left Texas and Went to San Diego for two years, which was awesome, mm-hmm. but a transition and transitions can be really tough mm-hmm. when you're in recovery and having to let go of stuff and embrace new stuff. And it usually takes about two years. Mm-hmm. And like right before the two year mark, Stacy had to move the foundation up to Reno, Nevada, because she was ending up um, living there. And that's where her husband was living and his base of support and their community. And so she needed the organization to move up there. And I just, yeah. I had moved yeah, yeah. too yeah. much and um, didn't want to go someplace new again yeah. and had fallen completely in love with San Diego. Right. And um, so I was kind of like, well, what do I do? Where do I go? Like, God, what would lead me where you need me kind of thing. And then I had some, you know, old, old uh, colleagues from Austin reach out and say, Hey, like, this nonprofit treatment center, which has been here for almost 50 years. And it has this incredible program called family house, which takes moms in together with their infants and babies for 90 days of treatment, which is awesome that it had, um, barely survived unmerging from this other entity out of Houston. And it was a really rough situation and they needed someone to come back who was a known and trusted Mm -hmm. face in the community. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I kind of felt like, uh, I kind of felt like it would, it, it would be my way of giving back some of the amazing karma and blessings that I got working at UT and, mm-hmm. you know, being part of such an amazingly supportive, nurturing community. And so I went back and it was never meant to be permanent. It was just temporary. Um, I think, you know, people sometimes, cause I don't have kids, mm-hmm. I'm not married. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of easier for me to move mm-hmm. <laughs> than it would be for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went back and, uh, you know, it was, it was a really rough go. Um, I was executive director, I was interim and figuring out like why the operations were such a mess and, um, cutting a whole bunch of, you know, bloated stuff out of, out of the budget was what we really focused Mm -hmm. on. And when we pulled it through the crisis point, um, and managed to stabilize it somewhat. That's when I realized, you know, I'm, I'm good. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like I've done what I can. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, the lady I was working with, uh, as the, um, 
she was the director of operations. She's now the executive director, Laura Sovine. And she's, oh my God, I call her the ninja. Mm -hmm. She's amazing, like with numbers and everything and systems. And she's now the ED and she's doing absolutely amazing. And, um, and so Greg and Jim from facing addiction reached out to me and they said that they needed, uh, to grow the organization and they were ready to hire a director of advancement, which is a fancy word for fundraising. Mm -hmm. And I was absolutely delighted. And how, and so how long have you been there? I have been there since October of 2016. And now in terms of, we have to sort of get close to wrapping up. Mm -hmm. And, um, when you just, uh, we just had our first light hustler retreat, yes. which was amazing. Amazing. And you came and spoke at it. Yes. And people loved it. Aww. So, and you know, one of the reasons I do this podcast or anything is to talk to people about sharing their stories. What made them decide to share their darkest experiences? Mm -hmm. Um, and how can they encourage other people to do that? So was there a decision point for you? My, for me, it was like, when you're, when you're at that point as a young, younger adult or whatnot, um, and you've gone through this horrifying, awful, terrible, painful experience, you know, there's a lot of wreckage that shows up on stuff like my academic transcript, right? my criminal record, you know, and I would have to, you know, show those things when I wanted to go back to school, when I wanted to get a job. And so it made zero sense to me how I would have to like build this life of not telling people I'm in recovery, but then having to explain it behind closed doors. Right. Like that felt really like not coherent yeah. to me. And so it was like, you know, I'm going to be very public about what I've been through because part of the reason why I gripped onto my addiction was I didn't see anyone or anything out there telling me how amazing recovery was, how no matter how awful and depraved and, and terrifying and, and horrendous your addiction experience was, like you would be able to overcome all of that. You'd be able to take all that and use it all in the way you build your life and what you can, you know, be a guide and a light on. And so that's why I was like, I'm going to be like as loud and, 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 you mm -hmm. know, open about it as possible because that's going to help me stay accountable yeah. to my recovery. If people start to identify me with my recovery, then yeah. I'm not going to want to pitch it, Yeah, you know? So for me, it was like, it, it was just like that kind of spirit of advocacy. Like it'll help other people. It'll help me be accountable. And, um, I won't have to like lead this dual life. Well, and that's what's so interesting. I've never actually heard someone say it like that. So here you've got physical, literal evidence in the form of transcripts and, and you know, arrest records. And you can go in in shame and explain, well, this thing happened. Or you can make it part of your sort of hero's journey. Totally. And, you know, because this happens with a lot of my students is they go, well, I'm really scared to start writing about my recovery because everybody's going to judge me for being an addict. And then they put it out and inevitably they get more love and more support than they could have totally. ever imagined. Totally. So it's sort of turning your shame, not into pride. I don't know what, what you call it, your shame into authenticity. Authenticity. <laughs> yeah. Is, is not only what empowers you, but w makes you a more appealing employee, candidate, whatever it is. Totally. Right. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Because you're, you're aligned, you know, you're aligned and you're kind of unified 
And you're, again, like we said at the beginning, like you've taken all this negativity and you've like looked at it, you've owned it, you're healing from it and you're, you're using it to propel you forward so that you can help others. And so that you never, ever have to go back there again. Right. Like that's a mission. Like yeah. who doesn't get behind someone who's on a mission? That's such a good point. And plus, no matter if someone, and I don't know why I keep thinking of like a future employee, but like an employer, but like if it, maybe their darkness isn't so dark but we've all got it. And mm-hmm. so it inspires them to go, well, yes. my God, if she could come forward and tell me all of this, maybe my shame about my divorce or my whatever it is, isn't so shameful. Totally. And when you put yourself out there like that, like to this day, people that I've just had like little touches with will seek me out when someone they know is struggling. Oh yeah. Because you, I made myself, you know, available about it and yeah. they will remember that because not a lot of people are doing that. But when you're going through this horrifying addiction situation with your loved one or your kid or your cousin or your husband, like if you don't have a recovery Sherpa to like tell you where to go and how to get help, you can get, you know, led down really, really unfortunate pathways. Absolutely. Um, which is what facing addiction with NCADD wants to fix. You know, right. we want, we want to be a recovery Sherpa. Okay. Right. right. <laughs> we want you to like know that there's a trusted entity where you can go and ask any question about how to help somebody with addiction, where to go, what are ethical, trusted resources? You know, like we want to fix that gap that was out there <clears throat> while we were all struggling. What a lovely, amazing note to end on. You are lovely and amazing. And you, listener, are lovely and amazing. Super lovely. Super lovely. And (laughs) if you're wondering, should I be sharing my story? I actually have a quiz for you. Oh, yeah, I do. Go to lighthustler.com slash quiz. Take that quiz. Find out if you're somebody who is ready to be sharing your light, sharing your dark to find your light, like Ivana. Grahovic. Did I say it right? You did. Ah, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this.